again. We have one more narrative in the book of Acts of the Apostle Peter. Thank you for those who have been journeying with us. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, in many ways, this does certainly feel like the first Sunday of summer. I don't know if you feel that way as well. Um, how many of you have already or plan to go to a baseball game at some point this summer? Whether it's a professional game or a niece or nephew, a brother, sister, something like that. Um, many of you are going to take that pilgrimage to the north side to Wrigley Field or the south side and whatever they call Comiskey Park this year um, to see the Cubs or the Sox. My formative years, uh, as many of you know, were in the Twin Cities, which means I'm a Minnesota Twins fan, for better or worse. Um, and I actually uh, spent quite a few warm summer evenings not out in the breeze uh, watching the sunset over the city but inside the now-demolished Metrodome. Uh, pretty ugly, right? Pretty ugly place to spend a summer evening, but I kind of loved it. Um, one of my strongest memories in the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome was not the actual baseball or football games that I saw there, um, but it was exiting the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. You see, the dome was supported by air pressure, the roof. So the Metrodome's roof consisted of over 10 acres of Teflon-coated fiberglass, uh, there were no stanchions. It was only supported by, uh, by air. It was the only air-supported domed stadium. So fans would enter the park through revolving doors that prevented the release of air pressure and kept that, that roof on, upright on top of the dome. Uh, in order to keep that dome inflated, the roof required 250,000 cubic feet of air pressure per minute just to keep it upright. Which means, if you know anything about physics, which I don't, but uh, when you exited the dome, you were moved into these pressurized vestibules, and all of that air pressure blew you basically right out of the stadium. So people would often lose their hats. They would need to hold on to their little kids. Uh, those with walkers and canes had to go out special doors because they were afraid that they were going to hurt themselves. Um, it was slightly scary, but kind of thrilling uh, to, to leave the Metrodome. But it was always strange to think about. Uh, I just watched four hours of a game inside a stadium that was highly pressurized the entire time, and I never felt it, right? I never felt it. So when you feel that air pressure on the way out, you realize that you've been in a high-pressure environment, a high-pressure atmosphere, 250,000 cubic tons of, of pressure, to be exact, per minute. You've been in that situation, that high-pressure situation, the entire time. In his book, Life Science, Henri Nouwen says that most of the world plans and prepares based off the question, what if? What if? What if the stock market crashes? What if this person gets elected? What if I get sick? What if I end up in a situation that places me under a ton of pressure? Christians, he says, on the other hand, if they're following the ways of Jesus, understand that they are already living in a high-pressure environment whether they like it or not. That the winds of difficulty and suffering and hardship are all around them. It's the air that they breathe. And because we have a Lord and Savior who, Savior who endured hardship for our sake, 
Christians learn to navigate the pressures of life, hopefully, with grace. The last narrative that we have of Peter in the book of Acts is a lesson in navigating pressure. How do we live in the pressure around us? What does a faithful response look like? So I'm going to ask Bob to come forward to read our scripture this morning. The scripture is from Acts chapter 12, and it's a narrative uh, about a lot of things, but I think mainly it's about the various kinds of pressure that early Christians, the earliest church, was facing. So would you please stand for our reading of scripture this morning? About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals. So he did. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the prison gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went outside and walked along a lane. Then suddenly, the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Soon after this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. There were many gathered and were praying. When he knocked on the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. 
On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted it was so. They said, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and they opened the gate, and they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the brothers and sisters. Then he left and went to another place. When morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. This is the word of the Lord. So what we have in this text is a picture of a lot of pressure in the early church. We can think of three different kinds of pressure that I would note for you in this passage. Random pressure, internal pressure, and external pressure. The random pressure is actually not in this text. It's in the text immediately preceding it. Um, Chapter 11, Acts chapter 11 tells us of a random pressure. In this case, it's a natural disaster. It's a famine. And the text tells us that there had already uh, begun a severe famine in the land. We know this from history, that this famine was significant. It was a huge catalyst for the economic collapse of that area in the first century in Jerusalem. In fact, this is what Paul's missionary journeys were raising money for, the church in Jerusalem, as they were dealing with famine. Alongside the random pressure of a famine, there was internal pressure in the early church, and we talked about this last week. Peter's inclusion of the Gentiles into the mission of the early church was causing tension. How are we supposed to incorporate these Gentiles who don't practice Judaism in any way with Christians who are practicing Judaism? The followers of Jesus in the early church were struggling with one another, with different opinions, different convictions. Sound familiar? Internal pressure. That's internal pressure. But the biggest factor in this narrative, and what this text is primarily about, is external pressure most of which comes in the form of a man named Herod. Now, we have to get our Herods straight here. There are five different Herods in the Gospels in the book of Acts. There's Herod the Great, there's his sons, Herod Philip and Herod Antipas. Then there's Herod Agrippa I, and then the great-great-grandson is Herod Agrippa II. The one in this passage is Herod Agrippa I, uh, and he is a master politician. He is a master manipulator. He picks fights to stay in power, He creates chaos only to swoop in and become the savior in the midst of that chaos. He bribes or buys off anyone that he doesn't want to deal with. He is not a good guy at all. Not a good guy at all. Herod thought that killing James was the brother of John, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the largest Christian gathering at the time, would intimidate and scare this small group of Christ followers who were becoming too large for his own liking. But when that didn't immediately work, he took it one step further. 
on the week of Passover, that's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, presumably a week to the year that Jesus had been crucified, Herod, assisted, Herod arrested Peter. He was the most notable Christian available to Herod, and he put him in prison. So this is the state of the early church in Acts chapter 12, with Peter at the center of it. They are under immense pressure. Random pressure, internal pressure, external pressure. And here's Peter. He's guarded by 16 soldiers, that's four squads, ensuring that he could not escape prison. The text tells us that he was bound by two chains in between two soldiers. This likely means that each chain was attached to one of those soldiers so that if he tried to move, if he tried to escape, they would know that he was trying to escape. But Peter doesn't try to escape. In fact, it seems as if he's resigned to the same fate as James. He expects that he is going to be the next one who's going to be executed by Herod. It seems as if the other apostles and disciples, even those who were praying for him, were also expecting the worst in many ways. So there is nothing but pressure for the people of God in this passage. And yet, God shows up. In the midst of this insurmountable pressure, God shows up. Verse 7 tells us that God sends an angel of the Lord to rescue Peter. An angel of the Lord comes to rescue Peter. There are two other notable times that this angel, or at least an angel with the same title, angel of the Lord, appears. Uh, this is a great trivia if you're ever in Bible trivia. The first one is during the Exodus when the angel of the Lord passes over the homes of the Israelites who have taken the blood of a lamb and put it over their doorpost as God instructed them to do. The second time an angel of the Lord appears, anyone know when it is? The resurrection of Jesus at the empty tomb. So when Peter sees this angel, he doesn't recognize what's going on. The text tells us that. Interestingly, Peter assumes something. He assumes that this is his guardian angel rather than the Lord's angel. Let me explain this for you. There was, a, there was a tradition in Judaism that was very present in the first century that each person had their own guardian angel. This is not from scripture. This is just like uh, extra biblical, okay? Had their own guardian angel, but that guardian angel would only appear to you at the moment of your imminent death. When you were going to die, that's when your guardian angel would show up. So for Peter... He sees this angel, and he thinks that this is his guardian angel, which is bringing death, not life, to him. But the angel tells him, put on your clothes, get up, and walk out of the prison, which he does. Look at verse 11, and notice the nuances here. Then Peter came to himself after he had left the prison. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Notice the emphasis. Whose angel is this? This is the Lord's angel, not his guardian angel. So Peter realizes that this is not an angel of death. This is actually an angel that comes to bring life and deliverance. I'm free. I can walk out of this prison. Picking up in verse 12. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. And on recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. Imagine Peter, what, what is going on? Just open the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted it was so. And what did they say? It's just his angel. It's his angel. Again, what do they assume? They assume that it's Peter's guardian angel that's coming to announce his death. But Peter was persistent. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. 
And when they opened the gate and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned with them to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he added, tell this to James and the brothers and sisters. Then he left and went to another place. In this tenuous, high-pressure situation, Peter's freedom from prison is an incredible encouragement to the people of God, a reminder of God's power. It's a reminder that even when the pressure is most prevalent, when hope seems to be lost, God is indeed at work. God is with us. By the way, I need to note that God was also with James when he was put to the sword, no less than he was with Peter. He was with James when James gave his life for the gospel, and he was with Peter as Peter's chains fell off and he walked away. So I think this narrative is instructive for us. Let me ask this question. What kind of pressure are you currently under? Be it random, internal, or external. What kind of pressure are you facing? It's important to identify this because if we don't identify the pressure around us, pressure can make us act in very strange ways, right? If I thought too long about the massive fiberglass roof that was hanging over my head with nothing supporting it other than air, I think I might have began to have a panic attack, right? I might have stood up to all the people sitting next to me in the Metrodome and said, we got to get out of here. Do you guys realize this thing is just being, it, it doesn't even have a support to it. But as followers of Christ, we're told that we should actually expect to experience pressure. We're told that random internal and external pressure are going to be normal and regular in our lives. We may move from one pressure and start another one. We are not delivered from pressure in our lives. The invitation in this narrative is to ask, how are we going to respond in the midst of the reality of the pressures that are around us? How are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? Are we going to behave immaturely, or are we going to uh, behave with the maturity that we see in this text? So I see three reactions from Peter and the believers in this passage that I'd like to encourage us towards this morning. First, they exhibit deep trust under pressure. Deep trust. We see a tendency to over-spiritualize in this narrative, assuming that it's a guardian angel that's present and at work. But when Peter realizes that this is indeed an angel of the Lord, and when the believers realize that it's actually Peter, they exhibit a deep trust in God. Peter gets up, and he walks out of that prison. Think about that. That could have certainly cost him his life. Pretty dangerous thing to do. The believers who bring in the prisoner Peter into their home, into their prayer meeting, they're risking their own safety and well-being in the process. But all of them together, what they do is they recognize the power of God at work, and they respond first in very human ways. It's a guardian angel or just leaving Peter at the gate. Those are very human parts of this narrative. But ultimately, where they land is in a deep and abiding trust in God. They did not dwell in suspicion or superstition or hopelessness or passivity, but they move forward in deep trust. Second thing that they exhibit is deep humility under pressure. Deep humility. I see this in the beautiful verse when Peter has to tell Rhoda and the excited believers to remain quiet in their excitement, right? Shh, bring it down a level. I would think that there would be a temptation, perhaps, after this amazing thing that's happened, to broadcast what God had done more widely and, and loudly, 
to maybe take a play out of Herod's own playbook and try to intimidate and silence those who stand against them. But Peter doesn't do that, neither do the believers. They don't seek publicity, but they remain humble and they remain unassuming. They prefer thanksgiving and prayer to broadcasting. Peter also shows a humility in recognizing that this is all God's work. He doesn't come and say, it was amazing. I was able to get out of my chains and I got up and no, it was God who did this work. Third, they exhibit a deep contentment under pressure. I agonized over this word, but I think this is the right word, contentment. This is one of the most challenging things about this passage for our modern context here today in 2023. Despite the external pressure that Herod had so obviously applied to them, we don't get any sense in this passage that they are interested in turning this into an us versus them battle. They're not pitting the church against Herod. They're not demonizing him as their chief enemy. They refuse to play the victim, and they refuse to victimize. Herod was a threat to a great many people, but they would not demonize him. We are conditioned and even encouraged in our culture today to demonize our enemies or those who oppose us and certainly those who actively oppress us. But instead, what do these believers show? They show contentment. Contentment. I think that's got to be the right word. They are confident of God's powerful presence with them, and they are content in the face of pressure. So in the pressure that you're facing in your life, are you exhibiting these three things? Deep trust, deep humility, deep contentment. Or are you over-spiritualizing, overreacting? caving to worry, broadcasting loudly your victories, succumbing to pride, playing the victim, or demonizing those who stand against you. It's an incredible witness, my friends, when people who are seeking to follow Jesus navigate the pressures of life with trust and humility and contentment when they don't try to avoid or deny the pressure that is so clearly around them, but instead set their hearts on navigating that pressure in a holy and God-honoring way. And friends, those who claim to follow Jesus actually have the ability to do these things, not of their own accord, but because we have a God who's at work in the midst of pressure, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. Jesus' own Passover example is our invitation. When we remember Jesus' suffering, the way in which he suffered, the way in which he dealt with pressure, we are encouraged to endure with courage and with faith. We recognize the pressure that we're under and that whatever it is that we're facing, it is nothing that Jesus did not suffer many more times over. His response in the midst of that was not to lash out. It was not to strike back. It was not to stand back and see what would happen next. Instead, on that Passover weekend, he endured suffering with trust and humility and contentment to bear witness to God's good work in the midst of suffering. And Peter's relief from prison, one year after the death of Jesus, was a reminder of that Passover promise from long ago that there is a deliverance 
that an angel of the Lord passes over places that should be places of death and turns them into places of life. That Jesus' blood shed for us covers our homes and our lives and offers us a hope for tomorrow. Friends, as we head to the communion table this morning, I want to invite you to recognize the pressurized world that we live in. It cannot be avoided. We can ask for deliverance from the pressures that we face, but I would ask you to do so recognizing that as those pressures are relieved, other ones are likely to come right behind it. Either that reality for you is suffocating and debilitating, or you can set your eyes on Jesus and navigate the pressures of life with deep trust and deep humility and deep contentment, just as Jesus himself did. Peter's final narrative in the book of Acts speaks to a Passover hope. It's an invitation for us, an invitation to follow Jesus, the one who casts off chains and delivers us and empowers us to live in this pressurized world just as he did.